Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia event. Japan faces a rapidly changing international environment. Asia is shifting from an era of peace and prosperity to one of contestation and great power rivalry. And uncertainty lingers on the role of Japan's security partner, the United States. In response to these changes and challenges, Japan has set out to change its foreign and defence policy and is seeking a greater regional and global influence. In this event, you'll be hearing from Nobuhiro Aizawa, an expert in Japanese international relations and Southeast Asian politics. He's an associate professor at the Center for Asia-Pacific Future Studies at Kyushu University. He is in conversation with Nick Bisley, executive director of Latrobe Asia and professor of international relations at Latrobe University. The event was introduced by Yoshimitsu Kawada, Deputy Consul General of Japan in Melbourne. It was held at the State Library of Victoria on the 28th of February, 2018. Associate Professor Nobuhiro Aizawa, Professor Nick Beasley, Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you everyone for coming and Thank you also to Latrobe Asia for co-hosting tonight's event. Since my arrival in Melbourne six months ago, I have seen how wonderful the relationship is between Australia and Japan. Our long-standing trust and friendship has been nurtured by so many. This strong relationship is more important than ever to maintain a stable and prosperous region in this rapidly changing international environment. As you are well aware, Prime Minister Tambu visited Japan last month and discussed with our Prime Minister Abe. Among other things, our Asia-Pacific regional security, the two leaders reaffirmed Japan and Australia's shared value and the agenda to move forward with the Asia-Pacific strategy including but not limited to bilateral defense cooperation. I believed that our two nations can respond to our shared strategic interests and work together for the peace and prosperity of the Asia-Pacific region. I would like to express my sense gratitude to Associate Professor Aizawa from Kyushu University for sharing with us tonight his expertise in Southeast Asia and the Pacific region, and to Professor Bisri for contributing to tonight's discussions. Regrettably, I must leave after this welcome speech for another official event. However, I trust everyone here is 
Looking forward to hearing Associate Professor Aizawa's insights on the regional security situation in Southeastern Asia and the Pacific regions. Entering the change in Japan's foreign and defense policy, as well as further cooperation with Australia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, are we on? We're on. My apologies. Thank you very much, Deputy Consul General Kawata. Um, and I'd also like to uh, add my welcome to you all this evening um, for making the time to come here uh, to hear our conversation about Japan's place uh, in a changing international order. I'd also particularly like to thank the uh, Consulate General from Japan in Melbourne who have provided very generous financial support to make this evening's event possible. Um, as we know, Nobu, the region is going through a pretty dramatic period of change. Um, China's rise is the big story, um, but it's not the only one. Nuclear proliferation on the Korean Peninsula and elsewhere um, make headlines on an almost daily basis. Uh, there are very real doubts about American power and purpose. Uh, and for countries like Australia and Japan, who have historically depended on a stable order, um, it is an uncertain and, to be frank, fairly worrying time. So I wonder if we might start um, with your views on how Japan perceives this region. Does it feel, uh, how uncertain does it feel? Does it see the region as one of risk, threat, or one of opportunity and, and um, possibility? Thank you very much, Nick. Um, yes. Um, I think that's the, the biggest question that Japan has facing. Um, um, obviously, Japan is now worried. I think the anxiety is very strong, um, simply because this is something very new. Um, of course, we had the Cold War period. You have this so-called unipolar American moment. But now, I mean, those, there's a relative consensus that's not the case anymore. So how are we going to face this? That's always the question. What is that this? And, and I think you're right, you know, the rise of China and also the change in American policies, the two biggest changes that we are facing. And, and I think you know, you, we can go on and on about what China rise meant, but I think the, the very difficulty that Japan is facing is that um, you know, we, we thought China's rise is a very positive thing, just because of the economic development is always a positive thing in Asia, but we, we didn't quite well realize economic power can change to military power as well. So economic interdependence was something that Japan was wishing for, but actually economic interdependence did not guarantee peace. So I think that was the kind of... Uh, a big question or big puzzle that Japan is now facing. So how do we going to cope with that? That's one thing. And also American strategy changes too. Um, um, it, it, it wasn't as bad as we anticipated a year ago, but of course the vacuum that United States will create in security-wise, the power vacuum that U.S. retreat will create in the, um, the, the Asia-Pacific was something very much to be worried. So I think the Japanese challenge is how to minimize that vacuum. I think that's, that's another challenge that Japan is not trying to 
to tackle. Yeah, yeah the, the question of economic interdependence is an interesting one because certainly from an Australian point of view, viewed purely economically, the China story is, is one of unmitigated benefit to the country. And I think for a long time, Australia and, and others looked at what was happening with China and seeing firstly, you know, obviously economic benefit, but also an opportunity through which China was going to be shackled by the golden handcuffs of liberal economic interdependence. Yeah. And, you know, if you're really optimistic, you saw in the emergence of the middle class in China, a pacifying, yes. liberalizing force. Yep. Yep. Um, Xi Jinping has kind of ended any doubts we might have about the liberalizing force of economic integration. Um, does, it, for Japan, is, is China and that authoritarian turn and that assertive turn in China, is that the biggest single sort of thing that keeps Japanese strategic thinkers awake or is there is it the US question? Is it the interaction between the two? Or is it, you know, North Korea, everyone's yes. favorite problem? I think that is a very tough call. Um, um, as you pointed out, we had this two big theories. One is this kind of democratic peace or, you know, liberalization theory. So, so all the, uh, the liberal democracy order of the region was, will be cemented by basically economic interdependence and economic development. But, but neither contributed to stabilizing the peace. You know, it's, it's, so democratic peace was, was not the case in Asia. Um, and also, you know, uh, the, middle, the rising middle class didn't favor the uh, democratization or didn't have enough power to change the democracy. And it's not just about um, China, but also if you look at other countries like in Southeast Asia, I think China followed much more on Singaporean model. I don't think it's a Beijing model, but it's maybe much more of a Singaporean model that kind of proves you don't have to be democratized to be a successful development. So I think not just China or United States, but also like all these other countries also impacted the principle of Japanese foreign policy strategy. And of course, the United States is, is giving a huge uh, impact on Japan. I think, um, not, of course, the security-wise it's big, but also um, talking about economy. I think the way the Trump administration talk about, you know, the trade, you know, how, how, how he demonized, in a way, the politics of trade worries very much about Japan because trade in Japan is a good thing, right? To promote trade, uh, to, to support, you know, a stronger trade relationship was the basic principle. But if you politically, you know, put a negative mark on that, that's a very worrying sign. So I think those are a wake-up call for Japan to we have to really rethink how we pursue our foreign policy. Yeah. Here in Australia, we've become used to the government referring very regularly to the rules-based international order, often said with sufficient frequency that it's kind of one word, you know, liberal rules-based order, and kind of 56 times in the Defence White Paper of 2016, for those of you keeping track of these things. Um, Japan was actually a bit ahead of the curve on this, because uh, I think if you look back over 10 years, you saw in the first Abe government, 2006, 2007, different versions of that language. Sometimes there was, there was that reference, I think it was Aso-san who referred to the arc of freedom, prosperity and democracy, which was the initial kind of link from Japan, sort of down through Australia and across to India. Um, how, does, you know, how does Japan view the state of 
that kind of rules-based order, which is a bit of a shorthand for a kind of liberal-ish, American primacy-centered status quo. I think there is a gradual change on that. Yes, you're, you're right that the, um, the ASO administration really um, pushed that principle of the arc of the uh, liberal and democratic order, but I think the word of liberal and democratic democracy has been a little scaled down um, simply because in, in Asia, of course, as I, as I mentioned, um, not all countries are, are democracies and they are also very Japanese friendly countries. Like just to give you an example, like Vietnam, for example, like Vietnam and Japan are very strong. You know, we have a strong relationship. We have a favorable sentiment, but of course they're not in political system. They're not democracies. How, how would you, how would you, uh, how can you afford not to inc exclude that kind of strong partners by just referring to the word democracy? So I think we, we, we also realize that um, democracy is not like the only, but of course um, it, it's a principle that Japan will keep on, but it's not the principle that we judge whether you, we include or exclude our friends. So. There's a nuanced difference between who we are and who we work with. So that's one, one modification that we see over this past um, 10 years or so. So I think that's, that's a very significant thing. And the other thing, I think the, the kind of stress on rule-based order is um, not just the power-based order, which you know, um, implicitly we're referring to China at this point, but also uh, we also um, worry about the deals-based order, maybe with with, uh, with the United States is pursuing, and also we also f in see the importance of multilateralism as well. Um, Japan is not a big country like United States or China anymore, so um, we have to be smart enough how of our survival strategy. And I think the multilateral platform, the importance of multilateral uh, platform, is as even more important in the coming decades. And Japan has been always a, you know, um, in a way, uh, an alliance, uh, an alliance strategy, uh, you know, based foreign policy with the United States. But of course, the situation has been changing. So I think um, those kind of changes is is making the Japanese way of thinking different. Yeah. Yeah. So that you see this sense that you've got a status quo that clearly needs um, adjustment, perhaps even reinforcement. Um, the sort of load-bearing aspects of the order um, can't remain as they are, otherwise it's not going to keep up the weight. And one of the ideas floated, well, it existed 10 years ago and then very rapidly disappeared and has now become, over the past six months, kind of flavour of the month, certainly in Australia, is the return of the um, Quadrilateral Security Initiative, otherwise known as the Quad, um, which I reckon if you polled your average person down Swanson Street and said, what do you think about the quad? They'd kind of look at their legs and look at you, kind of look and squint at you. But um, for people like Nobu and I and many of you in the audience, the quad is something we think about a lot. Um, so I was just wondering, I think how you see these things varies a lot from, from capital to capital. And, and Australia is, is very, and there's a particular group of scholars and, and um, analysts who are very pro-quad and think the quad is, you know, a, a key thing that can help buttress and reinforce yep. the order. Um, how is this initiative, this four-power initiative, sorry, if you're not following us, this is the Quadrilateral Security Initiative, which is Japan, India, the US, and Australia, um, which is not about containing China in any way, people. It's all okay. It's about, you know, inclusion and openness. 
Um, sorry, I'm being ever so slightly sarcastic. Um, how is this initiative viewed in Japan? Is this because in, in Australia there does seem to be a, a strong investment in this, although the diplomacy around it's reasonably careful. Well, uh, it's it's very interesting. The word quad is highlighted in Australian words because the quad in Japan right now it refers to the the figure skating, right? the quad jumps. <laughs> I think, I mean, the Japanese are so happy now with the figure skating, and also it's all the quad jumps, you know, that that all the media. So I think. Maybe because of that, we, are, we, we can't use the word quad because uh, we're taking off the credit from all those you know, uh, figure skaters. But anyway, I mean, um, I think the language we, we use is very much literally the, four, the acronyms of the four countries that included, you know, uh, in Japanese we call it Nichibe Go In. So that's Japan, United States, Australia, India. So, so that's the kind of acronym that we, we, we use or like four party, you know, strategic partners um, I think um, it, it is it is a, a a good good direction but I think it's not enough in a Japanese context um, because um, I think um, in a way in a way Japan takes this uh, this this old US hub and spoke system like especially with the United States and in Australia with confidence in a way. So we, we haven't really much worried too, worried too much with the relationship with Australia and the United States. But I think the, the key here is like India. H how, you, how you make India in, into partnership. And of course, um, India is not an easy country for you to, to work with. It's, it's a big country. And also, um, what kind of security issue that you share with is, has been something very different. Of course, in the Cold War period, we were on the different side of the spectrum, and also um, there, there are so many differences, especially in the security realms, for, for a long period. So, I think the strategic point is how to put India into uh, the mix, and and how do you convince that? Is is uh, I think Japan alone could not do it. So I think it's it's a, a very smart way. To have you know uh, Australia and also United States focusing on the Quad, which includes India. Um, but the other side of uh, what I see, there is um, not enough discussion in Japan, is because it's 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 still yet to be the first priority to have India into the mix, because there's much more than India that Japan is facing, which is obviously South Korea or Taiwan, or you know all the important sealies ceilings that attach to the South China Sea and also the Southeast Asian countries. So um, the word quad sounds like it's only an exclusive four-member club, which may not be comfortable with Japan at the moment because Japan wants more inclusive kind of naming at least <laughs> to, to have this, and, and especially like the neighbors, the South. We, we were very much having challenge with the South Korean relationship. So I think we want much more of an a, a, a inclusive sense. It doesn't have to be like the Bandung conference like in the, in the, the 50s, but something, something more inclusive and something that doesn't have to be very strictly d democracy. Right? Um, that's the kind of art that we... So it's a good direction that we have India in, but I think uh, there are more expectations than that. I think we... I think the Japanese audience want something more to make this idea 
you know, to be a kind of a national consensus. You know? Yeah, I think when, from the Australian point of view, is you know we've embraced very wholeheartedly this Indo-Pacific concept, and the, the Quad stuff seems to fit neatly, fairly neatly into that. And particularly, you know, if you're looking up from the maps of, of Canberra, it sort of makes a lot more sense than if you're looking in Tokyo, going out and saying, you know, we've got these big flashpoints much closer to home yes, that need yeah. to be to, to be dealt with. Um, like like Australia, like all countries, kind of not just in the region but possibly the world, our eyes are always fixed on um, the most important bilateral relationship, in certainly in the region, if not the world, and that is on the, you know the Beijing-Washington relationship. It's it's without question the most important one in our part of the world. Um, what's your sense of where that relationship is at now, um, and the sense, I guess, in Japan of how? You know how the first twelve months of the Trump administration has has travelled beyond obviously saying, Phew, it's not as bad as it could have been. Yeah. But it's it's still very difficult. I mean, um, like uh, thinking about the the defence strategy. Um, you know, even just one case. You know, we tried to analyse the the defence strategy of the Trump administration that came out this year. Um, what what was on the text and what was on the speech. It's different, right? <laughs> should we analyze very much the text or should we analyze the speech? You know, these small things is, is very dif- difficult, still having a challenge for us. But overall, overall, I think um, the Abbott administration has dealt with the, uh, the, the, the change in the United States like, more than we expected. I think, but um, how long could it be like this? I think it's it's the the future projection is not that optimistic, and of course there's a deep sense. Of course, we don't like the the condominium concept, of course, um, which um, you know the deals based order very much will go onto that side. Um, you know, the the deal base is is good for the kind of a theoretical enemy more than the alliance, right? Alliance needs prediction, alliance needs um, assurances. So it's tough for alliance, like like in for Australia, for Japan, for South Korea. You know, uh, these countries are having a lot of tough time because of that. But um, I think that's 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 we, we, we don't we we would not think this as a temporary thing. We think this as the permanent trend. I think so. In that sense, it kind of it was a good it was a wake up call for Japan too. We can't we can't just discount this as a very temporary United States policy. You know that that puts their strategy on enemy first and then alliance second. So I think. That's a wake-up call. So, of course, we will watch the U.S.-China relationship and how their tensions are. But um, I think right now more on, on, on the U.S. changes because that's more unpredictable. China, we, we don't know. We don't know yet at this point. Things seems to be relaxing a little bit. Um, so it could be – there were many predictions that China will be hard on Japan because of domestic issues – because anti-Japan has been domestically used. There is a political code that you have to be anti-Japan. Um, while if the Xi Jinping cements his leadership, you don't need to abide by that game. So there is no political incentive, I mean domestic political incentive that you don't have to 
do such a thing so much it's much easier for Japan to negotiate with China that that's the kind of you know growing understanding but we we, we still don't know so yeah um, that that's that's very tough tough to understand in the future yeah yeah deals based order you've heard the op-ed headline here first um, <laughs> The, and, and I guess the, the point's a really important one because I think you know, alliances are, are almost always asymmetric. They're, they're very, yes. very rarely alliances yes. of countries that are all roughly the same size. US alliance systems are all vastly asymmetric. Yeah. Um, when you've got an asymmetric alliance system in when one ally is driving deals, mm. that's a very worrisome set of circumstances. And if you're right, if it's a, if it's a longer-term trend, then the unsettling sentiments that we've got are yeah, likely to yeah. sustain. Um, during the Clinton period, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was this um, trend or worrying um, feature of American diplomacy which got described as Japan passing, mm. which I remember the first time I came across it, I was like, what, what is Japan passing? And of course it was the fact that American diplomats and, and senior po political figures would not when they travelled to the region would not stop in Tokyo. They would bypass Tokyo and go straight to Beijing and Shanghai to cut deals and to um, speak to the more important country in the region. Uh, and that was seen as many as kind of emblematic of Japan's falling in the shadow of China. Um, is this still, you know, is this sense of Japan being in the shadow of China becoming less important, is that still there? Um, and how does the sort of state of the US-China relationship influence how Japan operates in the region? I mean, it's very much, I mean, it, it's not a determinative force, but does, do you see it sort of driving the direction of Tokyo's international policy? Yeah, definitely. I think the, 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 the Japan passing is a, a strong trauma of the Japanese diplomatic history, um, not just in the Clinton period, but also since the Nixon you know, uh, Nixon period. So I think that's uh, a very uh, a, a deep felt um, uh, scenario that Japan always wanted to evade. But but be realistically, I mean, I think um, there's always a possibility to that. And how how you how you try not to let that happen is, I think, in a way, you know, Tokyo plays a you know, if the deals-based order is the, the order, um, you, you try to make Tokyo as a bargaining chip for Beijing as well. I think maybe it doesn't fill the kind of uh, a self-esteem, but I think the logic of international politics, I think that is, a, in a way, it's a good position too, which at least, like, if you look at the other Asian countries, they're already doing it. You know, they go to Beijing via Tokyo, so you deal with Tokyo first, and you know what can you do with Tokyo, and then negotiate in China, and vice versa as well. And I think if that that style starts to work well, not just by like Southeast Asian countries, but also for United States as well, I think that is a, a one way for Japan to uh, position itself in a new environment. Um, Japan is not a you know a second largest economy like it was in the 80s and 90s. So you, you can't be the champion, but if you want to be a major player in the, in, in the architecture, I think that is a very strong position. And I think there is a lot of reason and a rationale why not, um, you know, Japan, and, uh, you know, as you said, you know, whatever the quad or the, you know, so many architecture, Japan is inclusive in most of them, maybe only the Shanghai 
cooperation is not the only one. The only one, maybe Japan is not included, but for RCEP, for the TPP, or you know, you name it, APEC, you know, G G20, G8, you know, you have all these architecture in in Japan is all included except the Shanghai cooperation. So, and are you in Kika? The com, com was. Oh, the, the <laughs> cooperation for confidence building in Asia, and I can never get that acronym right. It's like the, it's the it's the sort of prize for yeah, yeah. acronym. Yeah, uh, security architect acronyms. You, you win the gold prize if you can get what Kicker stands for. But it's the it's the meeting at which in 2014 uh, in Shanghai, uh, Xi Jinping stood up and said we need an Asian security architecture for Asians. I don't think it's 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 kind of Central Asian Dictators Club kind of. Sort, sort of. I'm being a little flippant, but. Um, but you said earlier that um, for, for Japan, Trump was a wake-up call, and I, I agree entirely that Trump has been actually very useful for countries that have become complacent that the US would always think of itself and its place in the world and in the region in the same way. And I think we had always just assumed that that would be there, and Trump is a good, good reminder that you can't... These things will change, and the US will change how it thinks about itself. Yeah, domestically in Japan, there are so many debates now about mm -hmm. all the security... You know uh, issues that were taboo in in pre you know like five years ago. I mean, it was not just about the security bill passed in Japan, but also I think the Trump you know administration has w gave a wake up call not just for the government, also for the public as well. Mm. So I mean, things are not taboo anymore, which was taboo in two three years ago. So in a way, that was a a hard way to learn the lessons yeah, for that. It's not, it's not ideal, but it's there. Um, but I wonder, do you think that the current environment presents for Japan an opportunity to sort of step up and to take, you know, I, I guess from an opportunistic politician point of view, here's an environment which, if you're like Abe-san, pushing for a greater role in the region and international presence more in line with its sort of economic stature, yeah. this is an opportunity. Or is this a, an environment which is kind of more risky and more the greater vulnerability, or the or the two do the two go together? Well, I, I think it's it's um, there is a lot of anxiety, but I think you know, um, in a way, it's lucky that we have this uh, long-term serving Japanese prime minister right now. Um, uh, I think it's now. Is it's he scrapping term limits? What? Is he going to scrap term limits as well? Well, it could be, yeah. <laughs> Which is the trend in the world right now. Um, well, it, it, it was always the opposite, right? It's the Australian prime minister meeting multiple Japanese prime ministers, but now it's the Japanese prime minister meeting all the multiple Australian prime ministers. We, we admire Japan so much. We copied your, your love of prime ministerial reshuffle. So. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I think um, it, it's there's a lot of uh, vulnerability, anxiety, but I think the lucky thing right now is the you know uh, I mean you know internationally speaking, I think you know the we have a long-term serving uh, government, um, which is which is something very fresh for Japan. I mean we used to have that, but but it didn't happen for a long time. So to 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 cope with the security changes, it was the right timing, right? I mean, imagine if there was a continuous change in this environment. It would have been much worse than that. But I think that was the lucky part in a in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is the. It's it's. I think it's you know uh, right now it's 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 the do or die situation. I think this is the time that we have to plan long, um, because if it is a short term prime minister, it will be always a short-term uh, um, kind of arrangement. But now we could have a prime minister that could design a, a longer term. So I think this is, this is the point. I think, um, you know, maybe 
the TPP thing also is because of this too. Um, I think if it was a shorter term prime ministership, I, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if they just scrapped it as well. So. I think it's, it's a strong commitment. So, so that's why, um, to be back to your question, I think there's a lot of um, positive thoughts to take this as an opportunity. Um, the international society is changing, the domestic situation is changing, so because of the changes, this is an opportunity to change things that were, was considered unchangeable. So like the taboo of the security issues and everything. I think it's, an, it's a great opportunity, yes. I want to turn now to the, to the Japan-China relationship, um, so move away from the, the Beijing-Washington question. Um, one of the things that I've been really struck by uh, Abe-san's foreign policy is how active he's been on the global stage. You know, he, he's very, very visible presence internationally. He has engaged in, you know, he's visited more than 65 countries, I think, mm. since he's been in office. Some of them are a long way from Japan's core yes. interests, spending yes. a lot of time in that. JAL, specially fitted out JAL 747, um, with the flag that comes out at the top when they land. Um, it seems to me that he's doing this not for sort of self-aggrandizement, um, at least not entirely, um, but indeed part of a kind of broader effort to, to drive Chinese, uh, Japanese public diplomacy and particularly in a bit of a low-key contest with China. Um, is that right? What, is, what do you think Abe is trying to achieve with an attempt to make Japan a more visible presence on the global stage? I think, I think um, his, his commitment to the international, uh, I mean, the foreign policy is, is, is very different from the pr previous prime ministers, too. Um, simply, you know, he has much more confidence in the term, too. Um, but also, I think it shows the sense of crisis, too. I think, the, um, as you know, the Japanese economy is struggling in a way for many issues as well, the aging society or the, you know, um, uh, very much of the population size as well. So Japan's trying to redesign what exactly is the national economy of Japan. Um, you know, you have to broaden your scope of where's your economic sphere. And to secure that economic sphere, what kind of um, regional or global uh, architecture you need is, is a different uh, uh, homework to do. And I think what he is doing is, I think that's what uh, you're trying to redesign. If you look at the trade, trade um, statistics, um, it's clearly Japanese trade is diversifying it's not just between whether it's America first or China first, but the kind of portion that we deal with the EU or with a Southeast Asia. I mean, the, the, the number is on par. Like, the size we have economic cooperation, economic trade with China is as same as ASEAN, as same as United States, as same as Europe. So I think the Japanese economy itself is diversifying, so I think the Prime Minister also has so much at stake globally to make sure that diversified economic relations stays there. So I think that's the priority of what you know, pushes him to tri travel so much around the world. Um, second, yes, the, the China factor also exists there. Um, and I think this is um, much more of a principle of how you how you standardize the new uh, economic deals. I think one of the biggest 
difference is the um, state-owned company. I think the Japanese development model, um, of course, the uh, Japanese state was on on support, but I, I, it was bas- basically a private company-led uh, economy. For example, if you look at how private company came to Australia or uh, for for um, for other Asian countries, it's basically the private company's like decision, uh, thinking about their bankabilities and everything. So, so the the. The strategy of foreign policy based on economic development is very much private company model. While if you look at China, you have the state-owned company, which you can put bankability second to a strategic interest, right? So I think because of the, the clear difference of the primary role of economic policy with foreign policy is different, um, I think Japan has to convince the kind of standard of making this political, economic, regional uh, building. So I think that's why I think um, in another way, uh, prime minister has to have a lot of travel because there's so many countries, you know, you, you, you will be easily go for the state-owned company model of, of economic, you know, uh, design. So I think that's that's a big part too, yeah. yeah. The, um, the, the bilateral relationship directly um, between Japan and, and China has been difficult in recent yes, years, yes. You know, certainly since um, 2012 and the Senkaku yeah. um, fishing vessel incident. Um, and there were those you know, wonderful photos of uh, Abe, I think it was 2014 APEC, where Abe and um, Xi Jinping were, had this photo op where both of them looked like you know, little yes. boys who'd been forced to eat spinach and yes. kind of looking like this and um, and yet very recently I think we've seen an, an easing of that and, and particularly most most well, a few months ago now uh, you saw Abe sign in a speech provide a kind of opening towards the Belt and Road Initiative where um, you know Japan has been outside very clearly uh, you know you, if you look at some of the maps of Belt and Road you know virtually the whole you know you see these color-coded maps of Belt and Road of you know member countries or countries that signed MOUs and there's like half the world is one colour. Countries that could sign MOUs, Nella. countries outside the Belt and Road and there's Japan and the US <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, whereas Abe said, well, you know, provided that we all, you know, provided this, that and the other and around governance and blah, 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 we could think about joining, um, which seemed to me to be a, a, an olive branch. Is, do you think Abe's keen to su- substantively improve ties with Japan and, and is Belt and Road the way to do it? Well, I, I think um, the option is there. Um, I think the Japanese public is 50-50. It, it's not like, uh, especially on the, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, um, it's not that the Japanese public is unanimously against it and therefore the prime minister is not going, not going there. So I think the, the political choice is open. It doesn't make the prime minister in a hard, harder position or, or easier position, whether to switch the policy or not. Um, but uh, in a way, uh, we, we are trying to reconsider the kind of idea whether this, you know, joining how 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 politically significant is it by joining on the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, um, as an academic, we always do the historical analysis too. Um, if we think about the kind of the very old tributary systems and everything, right? Um, you, you you partner with a 
powerful not because you follow them, because you think they are the threat, right? So <laughs> you attach to a, to a partner because you feel as you're a threat. That's the way the, you know, the small Asian countries uh, relate to each other. So we, we don't always have to think politically, for example, like Cambodia being, you know, bought by China. I, I don't think that's the case. You know, you, you might think that way, but, you know, this is always a, a two- or three-folded metaf metaphoric relationship, you know. You, so, in that sense, um, joining the Belt and Road Initiative is not just black and white choice. You know, you, you can always have the political options open as if you, if you can control it, right? But how do you control that? It's, you always have to have a multiple choices. So if you could provide a choices, which is maybe the quad or the other, I think that will enable Japan to join the BRI. And also, you know, the, this is also related to the TPP and the RCEP as well. I think all, all I mean, nothing is bilateral in anymore, um, although we consider the bilateral relationship is important. Uh, to make that bilateral bilateral relation change, I think how much the TPP will be exercised, how much will that lead to a new negotiation of RCEP, and how much that will make the United States attitude different, and how much that will change the quad relationship, and then maybe we could have a new uh, position to join in the BRI. So I think that's the kind of sequence. So I think by signaling there's a new possibility of BRI, I think it's also signaling the other negotiations like RCEP and TPP and other things as well. Given we're in the shadow of the Pyeongchang Olympics, we probably need to, would be remiss, and you mentioned the quad jumps, um, and Winnie the Poohs being thrown on the ice. We talked earlier, I was wondering if that guy ski skated in Beijing, whether the people would throw Winnie the Poohs on the ice, but anyway, that's an interesting puzzle. Um, does Japan see the kind of Olympic diplomacy, which I think has been very interesting, yes. um, played out? Does, does Japan see this as the opening of a genuine door for negotiations, or is this just an opportunity for North Korea to kind of win some brownie points, strut the stage, look decent, um, and have a strategic pause in the, in the escalatory cycle, which we're just going to return to? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, um, it, it, it's very difficult as well. Um, we hope it is, but I don't, I don't yet see the sign that that's the genuine change, of course, um, since, uh, since we didn't have a significant talk between the Japanese and the North Koreans directly at that point, um, and we didn't have a clear uh, new deals or new, new arena, establishing a new arena for discussion. So uh, it, it's still a pending, um, but at least... Um, if North Korea feels more relaxed or, in a way, confident because of the success, or, you know, to say the PR success that North Korea did, I think that is a good thing, you know. Um, I think um, North Korea being vulnerable and insecure is much more difficult to cope with than North, North Korea feeling confident and relaxed. So... Um, it's not necessarily the Japan-North Korea relationship, but so long as North Korea felt that it was a success, 
I think that is a, in itself is a good thing um, in, in pursuing the next steps. Yeah. What is, I mean, we, when we talk about North Korea, there's often this sort of discussion, particularly in Australia, because we are, you know, a significant remove from there. And yeah, yeah. whilst we kind of, you get, get people call me up and say, can, can they hit Australia? And I say, well, technically they can hit ta- cans. And I'm going, ah. um, but realistically, you know, we're a long way down the targeting list. Um, Japan's much closer. And Japan has a clear yes. stake in this. What's yes. the kind of you know, preferred realistic end game on the yeah. Korean Peninsula from Tokyo's point of view? Well, it's um, yes, you're right. We're we're very close neighbors. You know? um, so obviously, obviously, it's the diplomatic normalization, and that's the end point. And and how and of course we the Japan will be ready to give all the support um, to the economic especially economic support for, or, or maybe in, in, in a lot of uh, governance support as well. But of course, this is all about the timing as well. You know, you can't just, you know, signal. I'm, you know, thankfully, I'm not a government official. I can say this freely. But, but at the end game, this is a normalization. But, but the strategy is how to reach to that point. You know, you don't want, you don't want to just follow whatever U.S. China has made a deal and then Japan follow. You know that doesn't sounds that Japan has a stake or a role to play in restructuring the the regional order. I think Japan has to have a a certain I mean clear roadmap to convince also the United States and China as well. Um, but but how do you do that is a, is a, is a, is a tough question. Of course, we we, we never want to have a, a war or, or or you know blasting missile each other in, in such an it's close by. That's that's the the least wanted thing, and the end point is normalization. But there's a big gap here, right? There's a huge gap, um, and and therefore I think South Korea is very important. But the, the I think you know that's that's the kind of theater that we are now in. Um, but mm, that, that's, it's, it's difficult, I think. You know, is, is, is it going to be in a couple of years? Maybe not. Is it going to be in decades? Could be. Um, because I'm, I'm saying this because uh, I can't forget what happened to Myanmar. Uh, maybe people have forgotten, but Myanmar and Korea, South, North Korea was as equally isolated from the international society. And North Korea, oh no, Myanmar chose the way to keep their military power by democratizing, even though partially democratizing. While North Korea, the, the, the Kim regime, trying to survive by militarizing and, and, and nuclear. Why is the difference? I think that's the, the fundamental question. And I think it's very much on how much the confidence is there, confidence of survival. So if, if the Kim family has, has low confidence in survival, I think that's going to be very dangerous. Well, because in Myanmar case, I think the key was the military was confident in retaining their power even though democratized. Where the conf- confidence come from is the regional confidence. So Myanmar had ASEAN. Myanmar had friends to give a cushion. You don't have to face the international world or the order by yourself, but we have us. Unfortunately, in North, Northeast Asia, we don't have ASEAN. <laughs> and, and because of the design of those kind of architecture, it's always a, a non-big power, but in North 
East Asia, we have China, we have United States. It's very difficult to decide. So it's a very different condition. But I think the key is how much can you make sure the Kim family confident that, and then try to convince them. Because we are neighbors. We can't you know, try to muscle him out in a very uh, militaristic way, which we saw that in, in Middle East as well. And we know what happened afterwards. Right? So by, the, by those lessons, I think that's the kind of strategy or the end game that we have, have in mind. So not a lot of interest for a bloody nose uh, oh, no, strategy no, 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 no. In, in Japan. Um, before we go to questions, I, you, you've mentioned a few times, I think, one of the most interesting developments recently in the region and particularly one which speaks to how Japan has travelled internationally um, in recent years, and that's the TPP-11. Yes, yes. I'm going to use that phrase and not the long-winded, awkward acronym that it's the new version's got, which I think is CTPPT. Anyway, whatever it is, it needs, it needs to go to rebranding school. Um, both Japan and Australia were instrumental in salvaging the TPP or to turn you know, the TPP minus the US um, to, to make it into reality, um, notwithstanding Justin Trudeau's best efforts. Um, and, and many of us, and me included, thought that without the US, TPP was a dead duck and, and dead duck because principally for countries like Japan, yeah. that, was the, that was the big carrot, that was the big incentive, yeah. um, was US access to the US markets in, in, in that form and all of the things that went with it. Um, so why did it persist um, without the US? What was the driver? Was it Trump? Was it, was, what, what was it that, that pushed them given this big carrot got taken off the table? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest thing that happened in the, in the last one year or, or so. Um, uh, it was an amazing, amazing thing that you know all the eleven countries has agreed to this. Um, it was it was really amazing. Um, and and from the Japan's perspective, I think it 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 really was a, a do or die thing uh, for for Japanese long term in you know national interest. Um, as I briefly said, I think uh, it was mainly coming from the United States itself. Um, I mean, of course, the United States is the one who, who um, abandoned its, its role inside. But um, I think it was much more than that. Uh, you know, the way the U.S. started to talk about the trade, as I said, about the demonizing of the trade, and also um, like investment too, like investment policies. Like if you look at the uh, investment, you know, screening board in the United States, you know, uh, like like you have in, United, in Australia as well, right? Like what was it called? Uh, the uh, Foreign Investment Review Board. Yeah. So for that's uh, for United States. That's C four was like a committee of uh, yeah something. I forgot the accurate name. I'm going to nod. But, yeah. But so. So all these investment and trade is now in the context of uh, you know um, like n the very narrow definition of national national interest and also security right so you could uh, the, all the political context context of of negative use of trade and investment is very much worrisome for Japan um, because Japan has to live on trade and investment um, both inwards and outwards. And, and if this negative code of politics can be the new standard starting from you know, United States, echoed by China and, and, and followed by many other countries, I think that will be a, a, a very choking moment for Japan. You know, you, you, Japan cannot breathe on its own. You have to have a space to be able to trade and invest. 
and trade and invest has to be a positive thing, and that is what the purpose of politics is about. You know, you have, the purpose of politics is, you know, economic development. I think that was the kind of agenda Japan had pursued for a long time, 60, 70 years. And now how you do the, the economic development, it's, it's trade and investment. So I think you, you wanted to keep that momentum survive, you know, despite of the negative tone of the Trump. So I think that was the, the, one of the strongest push. You know, it's a meta-level politics, but that was a strong push to Japan. Have to do this, have to salvage this. And, and Japan also thought like countries like Australia and others will, will share that same logic. You know, trade, and invest, uh, trade and investment is something you need to survive. Um, and so uh, fortunately other, you know, other countries also uh, agreed to it. So um, there is a very strong. And also I think TPP itself is, we, we can't think this as much as a trade pact. It's much more than, it's a more of an administrative pact. So it's, it's about how you design a government, how to design the standard of governance. And, and I think we, if you have more security logic in, in economic policy like the United States, it's the only the big countries that can survive, right? You know, it's only the military power holds that can survive. So it's always the great power carving out politics that will be in the future and all the middle powers like Japan or, or Australia will be choking as well. So I think that's another anxiety that we, we didn't want that to happen. So I think that those two, the securitization and we want to have the positive image of trade and investment. I think that's the very strong driving force Japan. One final question about TPP is the prospect of America joining. We saw Trump kind of vaguely nod in this direction recently and um, many in Washington, you know, if you listen to trade people in Washington, think that, um, the, that if you're going to convince Trump to join, um, it's not going to come from the Democrats, forget it. It's not going to come from the, the Rockefeller Republicans. He's not going to listen to them, what's left of them. Um, the nativists, forget it. Uh, and in fact, the, you know, the, the, for a lot of people, the, the only person who can do it, the kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi to the US Trump TPP is uh, Abe-san. Um, do you think, does, does Japan hold out hopes that Abe can convince Trump that they'd want him or want an America back in? Yeah. Um, and, and is it realistic? Well, of course, the Japan wants the U.S. to be to be back in. Um, that's how the original TPP was designed to be, um, and uh, and and the Japanese domestically also fought for it, and and we crossed that bar, and so we were hoping to for that to happen. Um, whether we take that Obi Wan Kenobi role or not, um, it, it's 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 really tough. Um, you know, of course. We wouldn't expect the, the Mexican president or the Canadian prime minister to be able to convince Trump because in American context, it doesn't look good. You know, you, you were convinced by the Mexican president to join the TPP doesn't sound, you know, uh, you know selling in, in the Washington, D.C. It's better to have maybe Abe, you know, the, the story is that the Abe convinced, you know, the noisy Japanese prime minister <laughs> convinced the U.S. president. So, uh, you know... I mean, that could be it. Um, and, I mean, there might be prices to pay if that is the way it was portrayed. But I think it's, it is worth it. I think 
the strategic uh, importance of the TPP is big to take that kind of risk as well. So, yeah, if that's the context, I mean, uh, let's go for it. You know, I think that will be the kind of rational. I mean, if I was to advise my prime minister, I mean, I would, I would strongly suggest, you no, know, you know, it's worth the, worth the risk. Yeah. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stretch my Star Wars metaphors any further because it could get really ugly really quickly. So we've been talking for a while. I've got plenty more questions for, for Nobu, but um, you've been good enough to come. So we've got microphones roaming the hall. So if you... And, and it's, fortunately, it's a room which I can see quite easily where people are. Often the lighting is hard to see where people are. So if you could pop your hand in the air if you've got a question um, about the topics. We've got. Okay, one at the front and then at the back there. Fantastic panel, thank you. Victor Purton. Um, we've talked about Abe Sung, um, but before this event we talked a little bit about the changing nature of leadership in Japan. Who are the new leaders? Um, who will be the next group of leaders? And what are the attitudes of, of Japanese to both government and business leadership? Thank you very much for the wonderful question. Um, so the next leader, I mean, it could be in the next generation as well. But I think um, it, it's going to be in a different Japan. I think, uh, I think as you might know, the, there's a big social challenge in Japan with the demographic challenge and also, um, uh, you know, the stagnation of economy. So there will be people who has a, a different background, not in the political elites to be the, uh, a lot of influence in the policy making. One feature I would, I would say is that um, uh, there's a kind of a new standard of purpose of governance, um, which is not very much super economic development led, um, because Japan is not a model for economic development, and Japan is not a model for democracy or so. So it's not the kind of classical idea of good governance, but it's more of a a, a kind of livability. Maybe it's quite close with the Australia too. Um, so one of the big issues in Japan or in Asia is, is urbanization and aging society. So all, all things happen in a, in a very compressed way in the urban zone. So a lot of social issues. So, so if, if a new leader in Japan who runs a local government also could be a very popular person to, to, to lead. And that kind of expertise is much needed in other Asian countries as well because of the sheer growing size of population in the urban zones. Um, it's a different challenge, different risk. And they have to be deal with not just the earthquakes and tsunami, but also a lot of environmental issues, you know, sanitation, waste management, um, you know, uh, you name it. You have to clear the air, you have to clear the water. I mean, all, all these kind of thing is a common governance issue. And, and that common governance issue could be shown by these kind of new leadership in Japan. And I think if that would be to happen, I think that will be the Japanese package in the coming decades. It's not the kind of, you know, the kind of classical national development model, but the kind of Im the mixture of, of all these, you know, environmental issues, plus the aging society, social welfare, 
you know, um, I think all, all these. I mean, statistically speaking, Japanese are spending so much on social welfare. Of course, it's not always successful. But of course, you know, the, the Japanese, you know, policymakers have struggled with this, and you have the expertise how to how to run a social welfare system. So I think those kind of expertise really will be the kind of um, you know uh, incubator for new leadership as well, which is already the de facto kind of uh, you know. Uh, you know, a path to leadership in Japan. You, you can't mess up with the social, you know, uh, security policy to be a leader in Japan. So I think that's going to be a new standard, and which is will be promising new leadership in Japan too. All right. Um, the gentleman just there at the back with his hand up. Catch my eye if you're going around, and I'll get, put you in the queue. Yep. Hi. Um, Aaron Soans from the Australian APEC Study Centre. Um, you, you mentioned a few times the deal-based order. Could you elaborate on what exactly you mean? Uh, do you mean that um, the U.S. leverages its uh, security relationships to sign trade deals um, that are more in its favor, for example, or something else? Uh, and also, uh, you said that for Japan, um, on the North Korean issue, the endpoint was diplomatic normalization, which is quite different from the U.S. endpoint, which seems to be complete denuclearization. Do you think that's quite, that the U.S. Um, goals there are quite unreasonable and could Japan play a role in shifting that? Thank you very much. Um, yes, the, the deal space is, is a, a bit of a rhetorical uh, expression, but of course uh, um, it's, it's very much on whether you run a order by predictability or unpredictability, right? Um, so if you run a, a run the politics by unpredictability, maybe that's the common business standard. You, you, you try to put your negotiation partner off guard and then, you know, you, you run with unpredictability and you try to surprise and then you get a better deal. That's the kind of idea that I had with by saying the uh, a deal space. Well, where like in in a in a more alliance system, I mean that couldn't be it. You know, you have to have a predictability that therefore you have or you're committed to it. So that's the kind of contrast that that I, I wanted to make. And it also, it's not the power base because it's the co commitment based, right? Um, so uh, that's the kind of a. a, a a fine line of different category that we are now facing. Um, you know, we, we thought that alliance system is based on predictability, but now it doesn't seem like that, which is, you know, natural for a business deal, but not for a, a, a security alliance. So I think that's the kind of characterization I wanted to catch up on. If, um, if I could if just interrupt for one second. I mean, I think that the point is that we still, that perhaps are slightly um, less catchy, but, but, um, uh, other way of expressing it is the sort of the sort of transactional vision of relations. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sort of yeah. when we were thinking about where's Trump going to go, the, the yeah. term that a lot of us landed on is a kind of transactional realism. So, no public goods, you know, cost sharing negotiated on a case by case basis, um, and played out in geopolitics and in trade. So, you know, if you look at the historic approach to the U.S. to trade, it's you know positive sum view of trade. We open our markets. We don't demand reciprocity because yeah. we think everyone will be better off. Um, we also pay a disproportionate cost for alliances because, again, we think everyone will be better off. Mm. Trump's, what we thought we were going to get was the kind of transactionalism of the deal, which is we all secure, you know, at one end of the extreme, it's, you know, 
kind of standover tactics. We will protect you, you know, kind of protection racket stuff. Not quite, but you know, we will protect you provided you pay us X or some other kind of arrangement. Um, and the trade agreement, which is let's get rid of reciprocity and let's use our scale and size to get a deal that's better for us and worse for you. And we haven't had that yet. So, to interrupt. Yeah, and and so the other one is about the normalization. Yes, um, well, I, I didn't put the nuclear at the front, but it's um, I think, but that's the one big hurdle that we have to pass on the way to the normalization. Um, but um, yes, there is a slight difference, I think, um, whether we. I mean, I, I can't talk on behalf of the government, but I, I mean, logically speaking for Japan, um, whether like denuclearization is, is something that as important as in the United States, it's, it's very different. But of, because, because simply Japan can't control this part, right? I mean, Japan and also Japan it will be in a very difficult position to nuclearize ourselves, right? I mean, that's politically, it, it's still, it's in, in a way impossible. I mean, nothing is impossible, but in a way, uh, strategically speaking, um, or, or domestically speaking, uh, that's not the choice. I mean, we did a lot of polls, you know, um, surveys in domestically, and, and you know, basically a question, are we ready for that, that option, and, and the public is no, no. So um, I think that's a clear sign that we're not going to take that option. If we're not going to take that option, then, then denuclearization cannot be our strategic priority because we don't have the choice. We do have to rely that very much on the United States. Of course, the United States is now changing the nuclear weapon uh, strategy. So that's very much going to set the stage. What can Japan do? But, but the end point is very much on the normalization. I think that's... That's, we don't openly talk a lot about it, but logically speaking, I think there's nothing else as an endpoint. We don't put endpoint to, uh, to just throw out the, the leadership. I mean, the leadership can go out, but the country stays there in the neighbor, right? So it, it's not like you just demonize one family and then you think that it's over. We don't think that way. We have a long, longer-term relationship that we have to work with. And if that is the case... I think it's not, it's not just about the leadership, but it's much more about you know, a, a community to community, which in the end, it has to be the normalization. But, but still, yes, you know, strategically speaking, it's a very long way ahead. But yeah, th yeah that's, I think that's the way it is right now. Yeah. And the, I think one thing the North Koreans have proven to be extremely adept at is playing off the different end games or different interests yeah. and positions of of the key interlocutors and particularly good at driving wedges between Japan and South Korea, the US and Japan, the US and South Korea, the US and China. And that's, that's been a, a, a tactic for a long time and they're, they're very good at it. Sorry, um, here in the white shirt and then in at the front. Uh, my question is for Aizawa Sensei. Um, you mentioned before about throwing out term limits and I just wanted to ask with um, Xi Jinping's a move to potentially abolish presidential term limits, do you think the Japanese government's uh, outlook is broadly positive because they'll be dealing with someone who has very firmly established political and policy outlooks? Or do you think it's negative because they'll be dealing with Xi Jinping for the next 30 years or so whose political and policy outlooks haven't always been easy to navigate? 
Well, um, yeah, that's 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 an interesting question, and I I don't know. I mean, it's it's both way. I think um, it's uh, it's good in a uh, it's as you said. I think it's good in a way that uh, he doesn't have to worry too much about these small things. But of course, it's worrisome that you know how he how the kind of uh, the the image that he want to exercise the power he got right because what we worry is always his reference to the past glory you know the Chinese uh, empire right if that is always the kind of reference point of what he wants to use his power for. Um, that's very worrisome because now he has the capability to do so. For example, now he has the capability to decide so, despite of many other counter advices. Right? I mean, before it could be that he has to consult with people and then he has to calculate what are the pros and cons and everything. So it doesn't really rely on what he has in mind. But now it's more likely that we rely on what he has on his mind. And so that's another worry. I mean, that's also an unpredictable thing. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a yes, yes and no answer, right? Uh, it's yes in the way the confidence, the leadership is more, there's more little incentive to bash Japan in the domestic politics. So therefore, there is more space. But we, we never know because at least Japan doesn't have a history that was you know, governed by the Chinese Empire. So, if the if his dream is like the empire that's maybe at least the Ming Dynasty or the Qin Dynasty, Japan is excluded. So you could call it a safe space, but but still, we don't know. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, but uh, I don't know whether it's positive or negative. It could be. It could be. Um, uh, positive in a sense that uh, maybe there will be a more um, I don't know, need for Japan to uh, address some domestic issues in China as well because of the sheer difficulty of all these you know, local areas in China. We, we call it local, but it's, it's huge. It's more, more than 100 million people. So I think they will need... Uh, I mean, I mean, the Beijing will not be enough for for the centralized system to maintain all the issues in the region, and then the region will have no choice but to ask more on the you know neighboring countries, and then maybe that will be a kind of difference that they will seek the space because they will have no space in negotiating with Beijing, so maybe they will have much more approach to the neighboring countries more than to the Beijing. So maybe that will be a, a new kind of relationship that we could cultivate too. I, I mean, I tend to, if I can give my tuppence worth, is I tend to think that if you see China as a, as a country that's, um, or are worried about China as a country that's prepared to test norms, break norms, overturn norms, um, then look what it does at home as a good indicator of what it might do abroad. Uh, and... Xi Jinping has just over, has just changed a whole bunch of norms at home, and if, if he's confident enough, strong enough, or some argue insecure enough, to do this, then I think you've got a 
look at what it might do internationally and assume that he's not going to feel as constrained by these things as we might have thought. I've been, never been someone who's thought international rules are going to con particularly constrain Xi Jinping and shame and the like isn't going to bother him at all. But, um, but, I, but it is, as, as Nova says, it's, it's very early days and all this sort of stuff and we have to wait and see. Um, Ian, the front. Thank you. In terms of norms, constraints, and empires, Taiwan has always been part of the Chinese empire, whether communist or nationalist. I wonder if you would reflect, when considering the future American-Japanese relationship, if China made a move on Taiwan, what would that mean? And of course, what would it also mean for Australia? if such a thing happened, given there's a whole history, starting back in the 50s, when China bombed Komoi and Matsu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th thank you very much for the question. I think that's, that's one of the uh, most important questions that is missing uh, in the Japanese debate as well. So people are all eyes on the Korean Peninsula, but strategically speaking, Taiwan is much more important as you rightly pointed out. Um, and I think, uh, as you said, I think that China, U.S., whatever, I mean, whether China uh, has a military operation or like China and United States cuts a deal, I mean, both are a, a huge strategic uh, you know, deficit for Japan. I mean, Japan has a, a different stake for Taiwan to United States. It, it, it's much more uh, than just a bargaining with Beijing. I mean, Taiwan itself, um, I mean, of course, obviously, you know, as a defense line, I mean, that's also one thing, but also economically as well, um, you know, in, in society as well. So um, the kind of stake that Japan has in Taiwan is, is very much close to its, its national interest as well. And, and so having Taiwan, whether you know, uh, by, by force or by deal, uh, you know, uh, being, being integrated with the, the People's Republic of China is, is, is something that the Japanese security uh, strategy has to prioritize. You have to prevent that. And I think that's, that's what's going on right now. I, I think... Um, you know, if you look at what Japan did after the, the big earthquake in, in Taiwan, um, it clearly shows how, how important, and that convinced the Japanese public as well, how important Taiwan is for Japan. So uh, there, there will be a national consensus on that. Um, but the, the method of how, I think, of course, we need to convince the United States for that. Um, and I think that is... Um, partly a, a more bigger picture, like uh, that, that's why I wasn't, you know, uh, that's why I was arguing the Quad is not enough. I think like Taiwan has to be included in those kind of strategic, uh, and but Japan, Japan has to find a way to have these defense. You know, it, it cannot be a, a official defense thing, but um, via United States or maybe like Australia can play its role here, um, and also. Um, you know, he, Taiwan is now doing a lot of uh, look, look east, no, no, look west or uh, look south. Or, you know, their, their style of uh, you know going for uh, Southeast Asia and India 
is something that Japan has a lot of synergy with. And, and, and clearly, um, um, like, like Taiwan and, and Japan is uh, uh, working on Southeast Asian policy as well. So it's the kind of redesigning what, what's the, the, the structure of Asia. So Japan and Taiwan can share the line with Philippines and Southeast Asia as well in terms of how to run the government, you know, governance model and everything. So I think it's, it's not just... Uh, about U.S.-China relationship, but Japan has its unique priority in prioritizing Taiwan as its 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 you know priority strategy uh, uh, question for Japan. So m more than North Korea, I would say, um, the trade line, you know, economic line goes through uh, close to Taiwan more than through North Korea. So that's just pretty obvious. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a big question that Japan is having now. Yeah, yeah and I think that's why when um, uh, Trump took the phone call from Tsai Ing-wen, everyone freaked out because it was such a shift in the pattern of relations and, and, and the, the possibility of it either ending one China or being the precursor to some compact with, with the PRC. Either one of those two outcomes would, would have been revolutionary for for Taiwan, for Japan, for, for the PRC. So it is, and I think it's often forgotten because we think, oh, it's all kind of being managed. Um, Murray, have you, yeah, Murray, and then here, and then here, and that'll probably see us out. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Japan's reaction to the One Belt, One Road initiative that China has been implementing over the last couple of years. I understand that, there's, uh, that Japan has introduced something called an economic partnership for quality infrastructure as a sort of competing um, uh, set of projects um, and uh, that, that may well have some impact uh, on those countries that are actually looking for quality infrastructure as distinct from money being poured into its coffers for whatever reason. Uh, but it does bring back to me a recollection of something I'm sure you're pretty conscious of, and that is when uh, Japan was bidding for the um, underground railway at, in Jakarta, um, that it looked as if it was going to win because it had the best quality bid, but then suddenly China came in with cheap money without any uh, real due diligence required. Um, does Japan stand any chance at all um, competing with China, uh, particularly in its One Belt, One Road initiative? Thank you very much, as always. Um, so, yes, um, I think we, I, Japan learned a, a big lesson from that case. It was the high-speed train between Jakarta and Bandung. Um, so, I think... Uh, Money-wise, like f it was, it was more of a financial competition more than the engineering competition. So the Jap Japanese learned the lesson that yes, high quality is the way the Japanese always pursue, but um, the high quality was very much engineeringly defined, right? So it was always the engineering quality of what Japan thought that would prevail in not just in Japan but other countries as well. But, but actual game was not 
the engineering game, but it was the financial game. So I think that gives a lesson for Japan that um, the financial deal is very important. So back to the first question, it's, it, it may be not the OBOR, but also the, it's the, the banking uh, strategy, the, the ADB and, and what was it, the, uh, the AIIB. I think that will come first, you know, how, how to how to settle the financial scheme between the AIIB and ADB will come first and then try to find a new strategy. And I think, um, having said that, if still we are going with the high quality, it has to be in a more smaller scale, but a meaningful one. So it may not be like this trans-city type of project, like big highways, you know, long uh, high-speed trains, but more on like subways, you know, like intercity uh, systems. And I think that's that's what we are now seeing too, like um, in like in Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh, or in, even in Manila too. Like the Manila project is very much what uh, the, the was initially Chinese project with the the Arroyo government, but but that didn't go through, and now the Japanese project is doing so. Um, I think all these, you know, the quality will not be a big scale, but a, I mean, I wouldn't call a subway a small scale, but, but still it's smaller than the uh, trans-city high-speed train. So at least these are the ones that I think Japanese will have uh, an edge and will be able to convince why you need to pay higher, higher you know, money for, for that kind of infrastructure. And I think that is, a good, it's a good decision because of, as I referred a little bit, you know, the urbanization issue is very important, you know. So the livability inside the city in a low growth economy, I think that is something that Japan has to sell. I mean, Japan has been stagnant for this 20 years. But of course, maybe you might know the, the living standard in Japan is not that bad, right? Maybe the, the employment, employment standard might not be as good as it was in 20 years, but the living standard is not as bad, even though of this very super slow economic situation. And, and all these like rising, emerging powers in Asia will not have an eternal you know, development. There will be always time that they will slow down which includes china as well and how to how to make how to design the infrastructure of a slow growth society slow growth urban society i think that's the point where high you know high quality comes in um, in a very speedy growth situation maybe there's no way japan can win in china because of the financial capacity that uh, we can provide and also the kind of uh, speed, political speed that, you know, in Japan there's, you know, there, there are procedures that we have to follow. Um, so I think it, it really depends on whether those demands who needs the infrastructure will, will give a priority into the high quality or more s smaller scale but high quality speed, which I think is going to be coming. So um, in, in that sense, Yes, we can't compete now, but in the future, I think it's very positive right now. Okay, next one is the um, red top in the sort of third row back here.
Um, particularly in light of the Trump administration, the uh, case for constitutional change um, to allow Japan to take a more proactive role in defence in the region um, seems to be gathering momentum. I'm just wondering how you see this debate playing out and also how you think it would influence Japan's um, role within the region and relationship with its neighbours. Well, yeah, uh, that's a, it's a big political battle, but I think that's... Uh, um, the biggest hurdle was already set. Um, so it was the, the security bill uh, time. How many years ago was that? 2015. 2015. So three. It's already three years. So well, since three is in July this year. Yeah, three is in July. So so almost there. Um, and I think that is. Um, I think that part is already set. So I think there will be a a. Um, easier political climate to do so. Um, but whether we really can do so is still unsure. Um, as you might know, I mean, Prime Minister Abe has many faces. Um, Prime Minister Abe as an economist. Prime Minister Abe as a, uh, as a, a conservative. Uh, what was the other face? Super Mario. Super Mario. <laughs> I forgot the third one. <laughs> but I think the, the basis of why he is popular in Japan is Prime Minister Abe as an economist. I think that is, that is always, if you, if you see all the election, how he puts his uh, you know, agenda or how he credit his tenure, you, you have always the econ economy first, right? And then you'll have security issues and et cetera. So whether that, that security issue will go through or not really depends on the first one, and you know, as continuously. So he will be co continuously tested in economics, uh, economy performance. So as long as the economy performance is, is, is as it is right now, I think it will be a good game for him, but but once the economy goes down, I mean, all the we have all the um, uh, all the the financial, you know, the the central bank package, you know, trying to muscle out, you know, the way of uh, uh, you know inflation, uh, relative inflation, or so. If that if there's some kind of an economic you know crisis happening, I think he will not be able to put that in the in in the schedule. So. I think that's the kind of sequence or that's the kind of, um, you know, uh, future scenario that we see. So it, it really depends on the economy for now. Yeah, um, and, the, and the polling is pretty consistent. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not supported by a significant majority. Yeah. And, every, and every time Abe pushes it too far, his personal polling collapses. So I think those two things yeah. mean it's my, my hunch is it's unlikely. I think there was someone right at the, at the back there, if you could make a quick one, and then I think we'll have to call it a night. Mine was, mine was actually a very similar question, um, but it, more towards um, Trump. Obviously, has been talking quite a lot about paying your way, about uh, for self-defence, um, and, and having the US assist you in in, in defending yourself in, in regional issues like North Korea. Um, I just wanted to ask more about the regional issues not only North Korea, but also uh, freedom of navigation in South China Sea. That's obviously been brought up here in Australia quite recently with um, Prime Minister Turnbull's trip to the US and whether Japan, whether you see any Japanese involvement um, in that and whether, 
whether Japan would get involved, obviously, antagonising China in the, along the way. Yes. So yes, that is the issue as well. You know, that's uh, uh, freedom of navigation is um, is. It's it's very much in the core of the uh, uh, the strategy buildup in in Japan, um, and and we now know that it's it's being challenged too. And we, as we know, the the, the rule based order, which we were thought that the UNCLOS and the the ICJ rulings will be a, a definitive result, which was not. You know? So it it kind of disproven. You know, it's maybe more of a power game. But if it is a power game, what kind of power does Japan has? Um, I think that is a big question. Um, we, we, of course, we cannot uh, deploy our self-defense force outright. Um, so we will always have to like support from the sidelines, and that's what we are doing for, especially with the Philippines and Vietnam. Uh, that's that, that's why it's so important. Um, um, it's important for them. It's for, important for us, and also to repeat, and Taiwan is also very, very important. Um, so I think the relationship with uh, not just with the United States, but also together with these littoral state is is something um, you know uh, is on the uh, attention. And also, what is significantly happening is not just about the South China Sea, but also in the Indian Ocean as well. That's why you know India. It uh, becomes a very important uh, partner in the mix. So I think this is, this is the kind of the new new alert that you know the ocean is in the front zone uh, of the strategy buildup. It's not in the in the continental or it's not in the, the the archipelago, but it's the sea that matters. And I think that consensus is already for an archipelago state like Japan. It's very easy for us to. To reach that consensus, so I think that's that's in a way it's a good sign. But I think um, we now have political priorities. But how much tools, political tools, we have, um, that's very much limited. So I think that's that's why the United States matters very much. Um, the United States has the tools. The Japanese has the polit political uh, weight. Maybe like in Vietnam, maybe they're reluctant to make deals with the United States because of its history, of course, and it's a political situation. But of course, Japan could be in the, in the mix to mediate that. Japan is very favorable to Vietnam, but doesn't have a tool, right? So, so I think the, the countries that share the common crisis of freedom of navigation, uh, they're, they're, the strategy is to get a set of countries who can deal that, you know, the political weight Japan can play in, you know, the military tools United States can, and, and I don't know how much Australia will be interested in that, but obviously for Japan, that sea lane is very, you know, it's, it's as important as to do it, so. We've, yeah. we've ruled out formally taking part, but I saw recently that we would be happy if American forces left Darwin port to do it. That's <laughs> as brave as we're getting at the moment. Um, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring things to an end. Um, when you arrived, you, I think, will have been given a little questionnaire um, that the Consulate of Japan would be uh, very grateful for if you could um, complete and drop off on the, on the way out. Um, if you like Nobu, you can have more of Nobu tomorrow. 
um, at the La Trobe University Bandura campus, um, speaking more on Southeast Asia, a uh, different topic than today. You won't be hearing the same thing again. It, uh, it's at 10.30 a.m. Uh, at the library uh, in the Bandura campus. Um, 246 bus will take you... No, sorry, the 251... No, hang on. The 250 bus will take you there or the 86 tram if you want to, if you want to get there. Um, a couple of points of gratitude from La Trobe Asia. Um, we're very pleased for the su financial support from the Consular General of Japan and particularly from the Deputy Consul General, uh, Kawata. Uh, enormous thanks to uh, Junko Kobayashi uh, from the Consulate for all her hard work in, in making all the, the logistics happening and particularly managing the to and fro between Gaimusho and, and Melbourne which um, needed to make all of this stuff uh, happen. Uh, I'm always extremely grateful for the La Trobe Asia team. Um, they do an amazing job uh, without which the, both the, the literal events wouldn't happen, but they also wouldn't be as good as they are. Uh, and of course, thanking you for taking time out of your week to be here. Um, on a personal note, this is my final event um, at La Trobe Asia tomorrow. Um, <laughs> for my sins, I'm taking over uh, the headship of Humanities and Social Sciences of La Trobe, 155 academics on five campuses. Um, so I've clearly been a very naughty boy. Um, so, no, th thanks. Um, the first event we did, actually, the very first event we did was on Japan. It was with the political councillor from the embassy in uh, Canberra in early February 2014. So it's kind of fitting that almost exactly um, uh, four years later we've had another event on Japan thinking about and, and a, a collaboration with a close university partner, Kyushu University, and with the Japanese government. So it's a neat kind of bookending of my time at, at La Trobe. I'm not leaving La Trobe. I'll still be there. I'll be part of events. You'll still hear me bleating on the, the podcast and the like. I'm not going away, but you won't see me on the stage quite so often. But thank you again for your support. Um, thank you for coming, and hopefully see some of you tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. I will be there even though I'll have two hats on. So thanks. Thank you.